of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every year we get to remember and be reminded of the Advent. But Father, we know that the Advent is a continuous experience. It doesn't just end or begin at Christmas time. And so, Father, I ask now for your spirit, and I ask that your words would be shared this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas time is near. I would quote the rest of the lyrics to such a song, but I can't remember them right now. <laughs> the air is filled with hope. Shops are full of shoppers. My apartment complex, complex is full of packages that I'm tripping over up the stairs. The streets are busy with people preparing for what's coming. Christmas. Preparing for moments of joy or lifelong trauma, <laughs> all of which requires preparation. But there's something else that requires preparation, and the Bible talks about it throughout. It's the promise of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the first advent, which is the hope for all people. In Luke chapter 3, it quotes from the book of Isaiah. So we're actually going to turn there first. The book of Isaiah, chapter 40, Luke 3 quotes a scripture. And it quotes this prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, 1 through 5, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This prophetic promise in the book of Isaiah 
comes immediately following the announcement of the coming Babylonian exile for the people of Judah. The catalyst? King Hezekiah, after hearing, or excuse me, after healing from a deadly sickness uh, through God's intervention, gives what he considers a first-class tour to Babylonian visitors and shows them all of the treasures of his house. He neglects to display the God behind his healing and behind the treasures. <laughs> and so Isaiah the prophet comes to pronounce the doom of Judah's future exile. They would no longer be possessors of their land. They would no longer live their lives among like-minded believers. Instead, they would dwell among foreign gods, among foreign people, and be strangers in a foreign land. So fast forward through history. The people of Judah were carried away for 70 years to Babylon, at which time we get the stories of those we've talked about before, such as people like Daniel, the prophet. And almost immediately in the book of Isaiah, it transitions from chapter 39 to 40 into this message of deliverance and restoration for Judah. It transitions to a message of the sovereignty of God and a plea to trust his plan to restore his people back again. But this is not a promise for the people of Judah only. Chapter 40 of Isaiah lays out a prophetic promise of comfort, of hope, of transformation and restoration for the whole entire world. It says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed to all flesh. Hopefully you already know this, but God's plan of salvation includes you. Even before Christ's first advent, even before Christ's first coming, that's simply what advent means, coming, while speaking to a people who were yet to be exiled ages ago, Isaiah prophesied this, and God was leaving this message for you and for me, for comfort, for hope, for transformation and restoration, a promise. Comfort my people, it says. A message of hope. I hold the future in my hands, God says. Don't worry. I will restore. I will, I will bring you back again. It's a message that reminds us that in the midst of earth's darkest hour or your darkest hour, while slaves and captives to the foreign masters of Babylon or while slaves and captives to sin, a light will shine in the darkness and all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Here's the lesson today if you don't take anything else from this, but it's the hope of the first advent is the promise of transformation and restoration through the man Jesus Christ. And this promise lingers on even today all the way until the last advent. This is a promise 
for the entire world. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says this, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This crying voice was fulfilled by the man, John the Baptist, who prepared the way of the Lord. In Luke chapter 3, if you turn there with me, we'll go to Luke where we found our scripture reading, our text of emphasis. Luke chapter 3, verse 3 says, speaking about John the Baptist, and he went into all the region of around, excuse me, all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm sure that this is easy to put together, right? Two plus two equals four. Every big event requires necessary preparation. Every big event, it doesn't matter what it is, it requires preparation. For example, we just finished the Thanksgiving holiday. And I'm sure most people, if you were cooking for the holiday, you, depending on how many people were coming to your home, you had to prepare food. And you probably didn't prepare food. Uh, uh, you probably started preparing your food weeks, maybe weeks, <laughs> days in advance at least. But you knew if you were a good planner, you needed to, to, to uh, get your goods delivered by Amazon Fresh um, ahead of time. You needed to gather all the, the uh, uh, needed resources for all of the amazing food you were going to cook. You had to send invitations and make phone calls and uh, check for airline flights and such things. You had to make preparations. And that was just for one day. Or think about something more serious. What about a new baby? Preparations need to be made. You have a baby shower so you can get all of the tools that you need to manage this new human. You prep the decor for the room if you have space in your New York apartment. You make preparations so that the landing of what's coming is smooth. There are necessary things. But here's my question. What type of preparation is necessary for God's coming. What type of preparation is necessary for God's coming? John the Baptist went all around the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. In other words, he was preaching a message of transformation and restoration. Let me break that down. Repentance. Putting it simply is, uh, people often use the illustration, a 180-degree turn. It's a 180-degree turn or change in heart or the life, which is made possible by the Spirit of God. He was preaching a message of repentance, of change. He was preaching a message of forgiveness of sins, a new start, a fresh slate made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
According to the passage, the kind of preparation needed for God's coming is a heart preparation. And it proceeds the coming of the Lord. Prepare your hearts. And so Luke begins chapter 3 by detailing this, uh, 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 these historical place markers for the time period. They help us see the simultaneous action of secular history and also God's work within it. Look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 3. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch, which means a quarter of, so a piece reigning in a portion of of the, the kingdom or the region, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. At the time of Christ's ministry, the reality of the presence of the Lord was revealed not only to the Jewish nation and leadership, but to people on the outside of the Jewish bubble, the Gentiles, such as Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. These and many more got to experience the hope of the first advent in the person of Jesus Christ. The offer of transformation and restoration came at the hand of God in the flesh. Jesus in person. Let's talk about Pontius Pilate for a moment. He was the governor of Judea. Ellen White in the book Desire of Ages, she describes him as one having a character that was weak and vacillating. Vacillating means indecisive or wavering. Also known as a spaghetti back. (laughs) He was unjust and he ignored his internal moral compass. He did, he, he did not do what he believed to be right. He put men to death without trial, and in haste, he didn't even review the case. His movements were not dictated by that which was right, but by a fear of the people. Interesting. That doesn't sound very foreign to some things we see today. I mean, imagine being ruled by this type of corrupt leadership. People being sentenced to death without a trial. People being sentenced in haste without proper review of the evidence of the case. This does not sound foreign to the day and time that we live in. And so Jesus came into his courts. And Pilate then realized a hope that he didn't know existed and a hope that he didn't realize he needed. What was that hope? Transformation and restoration. Jesus came in the flesh and presented it to Pontius Pilate in person. But then there was Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee. He was a friend of Pilate, well, previous friend, 
They had beef, and then they made up over the trial of Jesus. Herod lived a licentious life, full of pleasure. He was vain, pompous. He is the one who killed John the Baptist, the prophet, because of an oath that he made in front of people. There's a pattern, maybe that's the reason why these two guys are friends. They use the opinions of people to rule their kingdom. And living your life, a message for us, living your life according to the opinions of people will enslave you to a life of no control and potentially cost you your salvation. When you care too much about what other people think of you, you actually lose control. People-pleasing is also known as the constant sacrifice of personal choice and identity. Pontius Pilate allowed an innocent man to be beaten even though he knew it was wrong and sent him to be crucified because he was worried about threats of retaliation from the Jews. Herod cut off the head of John the Baptist because he didn't want to look weak in front of his esteemed friends. Yet it was these men that Christ offered through himself and the prophet John the Baptist the promise of transformation and restoration, a promise made to all flesh for comfort and hope at the coming of the Lord. The change was not only for the Jewish nation or the offer of transformation and restoration. The the offer was for all flesh, for people like Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. But it doesn't stop there. The text also lists, lists Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was uh, the high priest through power and influence. He had held the position of high priest previously, and people just continued to call him after that title. Caiaphas was the current, current reigning high priest, and therefore they made decisions often together, but Annas having a stronghold still in the position. And they were corrupt. In fact, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. They were corrupt. They were focused on on money and wealth and influence. They monopolized the priesthood and took advantage of worshipers and their resources. They rejected both John and Jesus as answers to the prophetic portions of Scripture. And so, God bypasses these corrupt ministers, and he goes to one qualified by his spirit to prepare the way of the Lord. You would think that God would use the high priests or the priests from the temple, but he bypasses them. And so John begins to preach a message of hope and of change. And an important thing to note is that John did not call himself to prepare the way. He was chosen. God does not reserve the infilling of his spirit to only those with certain qualifications. There is no type 
that confines the power of God. People who are called of God to prepare the way of the Lord will be known by their fruits, they will look different, but they will be spirit-filled and effective. The preparation for such an event as the coming of the Lord, as the first advent, cannot be left to or mishandled by those with a form of godliness, but completely lacking the power thereof. And so God jumps over the current ministers of the day and chooses John the Baptist to prepare the way. Luke chapter 3, verse 4 through 6 says this, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Illustrations of the physical world are often symbolic of that in the spiritual. The description of the coming of the Lord being illustrated by a transforming terrain is a physical illustration of that which happens to the human heart as God takes up residence there. That which is crooked becomes straight. That which was empty becomes filled. That which was high becomes low. In the turbulence of changing geography, a transformation occurs and God restores spaces to his original ideal. God restores hearts to his original ideal. The hope of the first advent the process of transformation and restoration, a change in heart and a fresh start in the experience. You know, experiencing the first advent is not just for Christmas time, it's for the individual life. When I was 18, 19, I was rebaptized. Um, into the Seventh-day Adventist church. I was originally baptized when I was about 11 or 12, and then later in my first, the latter half of my first year of college, I was re-baptized. And I can't really tell you exactly what happened, but something happened. And here's how I know between all the vespers or all the preaching, something changed. My desires for the life that I used to live, heavy partying and this and that, I stopped wanting them. I stopped wanting that and I started wanting, I started hungering for a deep spiritual experience. And that led to this journey, on this journey, of transformation and change. Like the Bible says in John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he describes the workings of the Holy Spirit, he says, it's like the wind. 
You can't see it, but you hear the sound. You see the effects. You see the fruit. And you know something changed. Something happened. The first advent is not confined to Christmas time. The first advent is when God shows up for the first time in your life. That time, the time, when you experience transformation and reformation and restoration, excuse me. There was an advent, there was a change in my life because God had showed up. But often in this season, do we just dwell on the first advent? Is this where it all concludes? We continue to share the stories of Jesus in a manger? Is this where it ends? Like I mentioned before, the hope of the first advent is the promise of transformation and restoration, but it is this hope that is actually carried on until the last advent, the last time that Jesus returns. Change. Change will happen and continue to happen in the lives of each and every individual who desires it until Jesus comes again. The first advent will continue to happen over and over again in the lives of individuals who welcome him there. He will show up and there will be transformation and restoration. We love Christmas time because we're reminded of, hopefully, the hope of a fresh start. (laughs) The fresh snow falling on the ground in some places. (laughs) We're reminded that there is a power bigger than ourselves and a plan so complete it solves the issues of our faulty humanity. We embrace the story of Christ's coming because it is the truth of a Messiah to not only save the world from sin, but to save individuals from themselves. The beautiful thing about this message is that the promise doesn't end at Jesus' first appearing. The hope of transformation and restoration, the message of salvation, continues to go out into the world. God has never stopped sending messengers to tell about this hope. All those filled with the Spirit of God, become testimonies, testimonies of hope that the world sees. They become preparers of the way of the Lord. And God intended for it to continue this way until the last advent. All year long, this promise, this hope, is made available to all who desire it. Before the next big event, before the last advent, there will be those who prepare the way. There will be those who look salvation in the face and buckle at the pressure of opinion, under the pressure of opinion. There will be those who've invested their lives in the teachings of religion but yet will miss the boat. But all will will encounter the same hope and the same promise. 
the preparation for the first advent is simply a foreshadow of the last one. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. May we not only embrace, but live a message of transformation and restoration until he comes again. Amen.